Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. From the Canadian cradle to the Canadian grave, from Mr. Dress Up to the raccoons to the beachcombers, from Chickadee to Owl Magazine and the kindergarten library, through to readings of Farley Mowat and Gordon Corman in grade school, on to mandatory curriculum assignments, Timothy Finley, Margaret Lawrence, Margaret Atwood in high school, on to sex ed lessons via Degrassi episodes, wheeled into class on an AV cart by an unprepared substitute teacher, on through to Brian Adams and BTO and Rush, the same songs on repeat, ad nauseum, throughout our lives, until we die in nursing homes where the radio dial has not been moved from CBC Radio 1 in decades. From the cradle to the grave, it is CanCon. Thrust upon us, CanCon, culture by government decree. So it is, so it has been, since forever. Forever for me, and and for many of us, but as it turns out, not actually forever. 
The truth is that CanCon as a concept, as a system, as a structure, as an industry, CanCon, government-funded, government-protected, government-regulated culture, state-mandated culture, has only really been with us since the 70s, since Pierre Trudeau. And as journalist Elaine Dewar writes in her new book, The Handover, it can all be traced to McClelland and Stewart. The Canadian publishing house that, she argues, is most responsible for not just Canlet, but for all of the Canadian cultural protections and regimes that spread forth. This was the first. This was the publishing house that took government money in exchange for a promise, a promise to publish Canadian authors, authors like Margaret Atwood and Margaret Lawrence and Michael Ndache and Mordecai Richler and Leonard Cohen, and also in exchange for a promise that their company would remain Canadian. Now, how McClellan and Stewart would ultimately get sold and be allowed to be sold to a foreign conglomerate, that is the CanCon mystery that Elaine Dewar solves. And she'll be with me in a minute. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Miroslav Radovic, Jeff Higgins, Ellen Croker, Dave Robinson, Andreas Krebs, Tracy Vantigam, Mel Mitchell, and Alex Dodd. Alex, why did you decide to be awesome? I support Canada Land because as a Canadian, I think it's important to support journalism that dissects Canadian media and holds Canadian media accountable. This episode is brought to you by the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity and they are doing cutting edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. And this episode is brought to you by our founding sponsor, FreshBooks, cloud accounting by FreshBooks, the best of its kind in the world, the best service. They started out as an invoice solution. They have since developed a suite of tools 
time tracking, estimates, expenses, taxes, tons of stuff that more and more people need for their individual practices or for their small businesses. But because we are seeing more and more people in private practice, in independent practice, launching entrepreneurial efforts, we don't have accounting departments. Well, this is the accounting department for all of those new players. This is empowering people to do these things and do them well. And it sort of becomes your mission control, like your control panel for your business. What money is coming in? What money is going out? Who is actually looking at my invoices? Who's paying me when? You can keep track of it all and get peace of mind and most of all, save time when you use FreshBooks. Go to freshbooks.com slash CanadaLand and see what I've been talking about. Try it out for free for 30 days. No credit card required. If you do become a customer, tell them that CanadaLand sent you and you will be doing the show a favor. This episode is also brought to you by Second City Improv. You know Second City? Second City, of course, where Gilda Radner was trained, where John Candy was trained, where Stephen Colbert was trained. Well, a lot of people are looking at improv training, not just as something that is incredibly fun and incredibly social, but as something that can kind of open up a whole new way of experiencing the world and interacting with people. It is being used to enrich people's lives, whether you're in theater and the arts, or if you are in the boardroom of a Fortune 500 company, there are corporate retreats to do improv training. Academics from Oxford University, the founder of Twitter, there's all kinds of people who are extolling the life-changing benefits of trying improv out. It helps you in both your professional and personal life, makes you a better listener, communicator, and contributor. And Second City is the largest school of improv and sketch comedy in the world. People, you can go and do one class for free, a drop-in class for free, and you'll see just how supportive and collaborative and motivational and fun it is to do Second City Improv. They have social classes, professional classes, youth and teen, and a brand new program called Rewire You, which is business focused. Go to secondcity.com slash CanadaLand. There's a discount there, and you will also find details on your free drop-in class. Why not just do this? If we're to start at the beginning, why does this one imprint matter so much? And at its in its heyday, what did it represent? Oh, two questions. In its heyday, it basically published everybody who was writing interesting things about this country, either fiction or nonfiction. So, you know, the usual list of suspects is very long. I mean, you can start with Margaret Atwood and Michael Andante and go through Peter Newman and Pierre Burton and Farley Mowat and endless names of importance to the literary life of this country going back to 1906 when the company was formed. But the reason why it was so important that this handover was permitted is that the whole sort of superstructure of, I guess you would say, the cultural policy of this country, the nationalist, protectionist cultural policy of this country, started with McClellan and Stewart. They needed money when Jack McClellan was still running the company back in about 1971. And they prevailed upon the government of Ontario, which was in the middle of a re-election campaign, to help them out. Up until that point, there'd been no funding by either federal or provincial governments of publishers in this country, and there'd been no policy whatsoever. I don't know if you are old enough to have any sense of what was going on in 1970. In 1970, we had something called the October Crisis. And there was real concern, both federally and provincially, that if an alternative vision of this country was not offered, that Quebec would separate and the whole country would go to hell. So 
there were all of these forces about getting control of the economy of this country, which up until that point had been essentially run either by British or American investors, about getting control of cultural expression. Because in the 1950s, there'd been this Royal Commission on Arts, Letters, and Culture in this country. And it turned out that almost no Canadian books, novels, or poetry were being published by Canadian publishers. I mean, I think the number was 14 in 1951. So the issue was, how do you have a country when all of the images portraying life are coming from somewhere else, are coming from the United States, are coming from Britain, are coming from France? And how do you create a culture in a country right beside that enormous cultural maelstrom, the United States, when you're using the same language, which would be English, how how do you, in effect, carve out a space for Canadian writers and Canadian readers? With protectionist cultural policy and boondoggles. Well, the boondoggles, nobody understood. Or if they did, they weren't talking about it. But definitely with a protectionist policy. You situate this historically and culturally. I mean, at this moment, it's not just about a response to overwhelming American culture uh, because the government looked at this problem, but you situate it within like a cultural moment. This was the boomers. Yep. And this was Pierre Trudeau. Yep. Well, Pierre Trudeau pushed by David Lewis and the rise of the waffle and the NDP. Right. So the Liberal Party was a split entity. It, it, it had continentalists on the one side, nationalists on the other. <clears throat> and Trudeau, I think it's unfair to say that he was one or the other, but during the early years of his prime ministership, there were many reasons why nationalists got the upper hand, not least the behavior of the United States, the Nixon shock, going off the gold standard, putting on, I think it was a, a kind of tariff on all imports to the United States all at once, no notice to Canada. I mean, there were a number of issues that said to Canadians of my generation, Jesus, we got to get a grip on this or we're losing our country. And it is about that generation. And it's, it was so interesting to me to read this confluence of factors where you've got a, the boomer generation who, unlike young people of my generation, maybe, maybe more like the generation that's coming up, but the boomers had voting power. They could make things happen by, yeah. sure, by sure virtue of their... Of that's their... right. And, and the boomers were very, very upset about what was going on in the United States. The Vietnam War was very much in everybody's face. I mean, I, I was young age 20 in 1968, and we had draft dodgers living in our co-op house, you know, because they needed a place to stay. Yeah. So the sense of there is no American dream that we want to be a part of, but there might be a Canadian dream that we could build was very, very strong. Well, look, I'm very familiar with the boomers story, especially the boomer story about themselves. And even in a Canadian yeah, context, so boring. the uh, well, uh, you know, look, I found it fascinating when I was a kid, the, the glorifying, self-glorifying stories that were told. And it's only when you find out that they're not exactly what they seem or if they are what they seem, they were only true for a while. And everything that happened in the 80s. And ignored. there were contradictions at the same time all the time. But leaving all that aside, yeah. what's interesting to me is putting that in a Canadian context and saying, well, this was a generation that was singularly interested in defining itself as opposed to America, was not interested in just being a splinter vassal state of America. And then you've got, I mean, Trudeau, who sort of was this 
boomer prime minister or no i know that he wasn't of the generation but i feel like he's associated with that moment and represented a lot of those strains i kept he was very attractive to boomers because he was open-minded on social issues yeah and that really opened a door for him and he understood and his certainly the people around him were trying to keep him getting elected understood that to have a majority government in this country he needed a majority in ontario he needed a majority in quebec and where was he going to get it us. Yeah, he had to. He had to appeal to both he sides. Had to but appeal he, to us. But he had to appeal. And we hear so much about his charisma and his young wife and the, getting to the Rolling Stones. It's all part of the Canadian mythology of the Boomers. And but the, but the part that spoke to me is because we look at this stuff like every week. This <laughs> regime of Canadian cultural protection that in time extended out through the CRTC and and into magazines, newspaper protectionist measures, uh, CanCon quotas on, on, on music, and an entire, anybody who enters the cultural fields, the arts or journalism, letters of any kind, finds themselves encountering the grant system or the CRTC licensing system or these quotas. And you can come to think that that's just sort of, that's the institution that is Canada, but it's not so. This was actually a response. This was a response it, to having nothing. It was a rebellious response. Yes. That it was, that. we can create our own. We can be maitre chez nous. Uh, we have to do it by the power of the state because the market is too small to sustain itself. You know, if you've got 26 or 30 million people as a market versus 300 million people as a market, your choices are restricted, Right. So for certainly in the early 1970s, I would say 74, when the Foreign Investment Review Act was part of the re-election campaign of Mr. Trudeau, it was at that point that the regulations and the protectionist rules really came into play. Mm -hmm. 1971, all that happened was the government of Ontario trying to get itself elected decided to give some money in the form of a debenture, I think, to Jack McClelland. How did that small initiative, the tendrils of that spread out to become an entire protectionist regime? Well, because the people who were around it and and who supported it, starting with Peter Newman, who was then running McLean's magazine, uh, starting with Walter Gordon, A. Brotstein, there was a whole group who formed, I think that it was a Committee for an Independent Canada was the name of their organization. They put together a huge petition that got 170,000 signatures, which were handed off to Ottawa to say, we got to do something about being able to write about Canada, publish about Canada, sing about Canada. We we need help. And it worked to the extent that the Canlit canon, uh, as you described it, Atwood and Audace, I mean, who, who else did McClellan and Stewart publish? Oh, <laughs> everybody. Yeah. Basically everybody, Leonard and it Cohen. wasn't just yeah, it wasn't just fiction. It was nonfiction, and in a way, the nonfiction was almost more important because the books that were being published about Canadian politicians, Canadian politics, Canadian ideas, Canadian history were also coming through McClellan and Stewart, and those books would not have happened without it. I mean, I'm talking about books for the general audience, not scholarly books for university presses. I want to poke at this idea that this was such a great thing, which I think you do a fine job of as well. And I'm actually confused as to ultimately where you stand. On well, I not- said I was contradictory. I mean, it, this, the fact is that while I was looking at this thing unfolding, I was working at McLean's. That was yeah. my first journalism job. 
I edited the back pages, which means the book reviews, which means I read the books that I was sending out for review, and they were crap. Yeah. By and large, crap. God help you. What a job that is. It was not good. It was interesting, but but it really conflicted me about whether it's worth supporting this sort of cultural whatever it is that was starting to grow. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember being absolutely astonished at how good Alice Monroe was astonished because she was so much better than everything else that was, you know, coming out at the same time. So I, I was conflicted. Yeah. I mean, I was looking to run to the States too. There's a a really scathing critique of the whole protectionist regime in your book. And I want to, I just want to quote some of these because there's some beautiful descriptions that would be welcome on any episode of Canada Land. We'll get into that in a bit. But first, I think we just need to kind of close the loop here. That was the glorious beginning of the McClellan and Stewart story and the cultural protectionist movement. Well, no, movement. The, the McClellan and Stewart story goes back to 1906. I'm, but that's the, the glorious takeoff of McClellan and Stewart really begins in the 60s. Yes. He gets into trouble because he's doing so much trade publishing without doing the agency business, as in distributing foreign publishers' works in Canada. He decided to say, to hell with that. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing educational publishing. I'm going to do Canadian publishing, which got him in crap. So he was always in trouble for money. Mm -hmm. He always needed to borrow more. The interest rates in those days were quite high. So his debt just kept overwhelming him. But did the government bail him out? Is that how? Several times. Right. And others bailed him out too. And the golden days are that through those bailouts, we have the Canlit canon. There was that commitment to telling our own stories, yep. et cetera, et cetera. So you fast forward to the handover. And oh, by the way, it helped people like me. Yeah. Was that your first publisher? No. How did it help but you? But the notion that Canadian authors were able to find audiences in this country meant that the foreign publishers who were well-established here began to actually look for Canadian projects mm -hmm. and pay for them. Okay. And as they paid for them, everybody's boat went up. They paid more. Right. Okay. We will have to skip a lot of stuff that happened in between, but ultimately the whole thing got sold off to foreigners. Not the whole thing. First a chunk and then the rest, isn't it? Are you talking about M&S now? Take me through it. Okay, so what M&S did was get itself in and out of trouble repeatedly. Finally, in 1985, there was another bout of trouble. The government of Ontario, through a complicated little structure, allowed a debenture to be issued in which Jack McClellan still kept, I think it was 60% or 65% of the equity of his company. But the, the other 35% or 30% or whatever the number was, was sold off in a debenture that the government backed. When that happened, Avi Bennett took a piece of the debenture. And Avi Bennett, being a very able developer with a whole lot of money, uh, was invited onto the board of M&S. This is a real estate developer. This is a real estate developer whose family business had been absolutely huge in the 60s. Yeah, and by 85, he was tired of the development business. Here's a question. Why would a multimillionaire real estate mogul want to get involved in the low-profit, struggling... Not for the money. Okay. The glory, the glamour. Uh-huh. And there's always characters like this, aren't there? Well, <laughs> not enough, apparently. But yeah, sure, there are characters like this. And, and for redemption, too, because I think he took the bankruptcy terribly personally. 
and he wanted to take a stronger role in the culture of this country, and that was his way in. It was an opportunity that uh, that he picked up on. Mm-hmm. And Jack McClellan had had enough. He was tired. So, he sold out and sold to, to Avi. He did. And, and what did Avi do with it? Well, for 15 years, he continued to run the company. Uh, he built it. He apparently lent it a ton of money. And basically, by the time he was 72, so we're rounding the corner on 1999, uh, he decided he had to have an exit. Mm-hmm. You know, his kids didn't want to be in the business, is how he put it to me. And he was tired and he needed an exit strategy. Not a real exit, but an exit strategy. So he dreamed up this gift sale thing, which got around the Investment Canada Act, which says thou shalt not sell a Canadian publisher to a foreign interest. Yeah. Unless two conditions prevail. One, you are about to go bankrupt, and two, you've offered it to Canadians and they've turned you down. Mm-hmm. This is the protectionist... This is the protectionist regime umbrella, framework. the yeah. regime, which exists under what's called the Investment Canada Act and is augmented by something called the book policy, which is a federal policy about how to interpret the meaning of the Investment Canada Act with regard to books. He gave 75% of new M&S to the University of Toronto, a Canadian entity, therefore owned and controlled by a Canadian entity, 25% to Random House of Canada, which is entirely owned by Bertelsmann, which is the largest English language publisher in the world and is definitely foreign. I mean, their their head office is Gattersloh, Germany. Let me see if I understand that, and you'll tell me where I get off base here. Wealthy real estate developer bails out a legendary Canadian publisher, maybe because... It's... Because his daughter-in-law, who was Alison Gordon was writing a book called Foul Balls and was coming to Friday night dinner and saying, it's a mess, I can't stand it, somebody's got to fix it. Wait. So that's how he got in. He, he, he wanted- bought into the debenture because he wanted to see what the heck was going on with his daughter-in-law's problem. Is this like the guy who produces a movie so he can give his daughter a role in it? Uh, no, because it wasn't his daughter, it was his daughter-in-law. Oh, okay. And she ended up light. splitting up with the husband. No, I think he was just bored. I think Avi Bennett's a really smart guy. And the, as he said to me, the business deals he was doing as a developer were small. The only really interesting deals going on in real estate at that point were huge deals. He was a little pisher and he didn't want to, you know, spend his evenings going to City Hall begging for changes to the rules. Is this about how he wanted to spend his evenings? Because you don't get invited to like a Nobel Prize gala for being Yeah, a... I think that was a big part of it. But right? by then he was already... Trying to become a person of substance in the community. He'd already, I think, been appointed to the Governing Council of U of T by Peterson. It was either that year or immediately after. U of T is a very interesting political organization, and anybody who's interested in the political or social life of this country has some kind of relationship to it. Uh So he was definitely interested in having a public role in the cultural life of this country. He had put together something called the Bennett Family Foundation, which had, I think at that point, maybe 23 or 25 million bucks in it, which he was distributing to various cultural institutions. He was, you know, yeah, he was turning into a philanthropist, which is how you make waves culturally in this town. Yeah. And this is all, this is familiar stuff. And let's give him benefit of the doubt. People Later in their careers, when they get tired of just being rich, they some, will get into being philanthropists or 
getting into things that are not don't make so much sense business wise. He went way beyond it because he was actually running his company. Yeah, but the thing is, is that the end is always the same: is that people get tired of being angel investors, and uh, I don't know if ultimately. Well, an angel investor is different from the chairman of a company who's sitting every day with the publisher trying to figure out how to make it work. Yeah, he was all in and tried to make a make a run of it, but it, ultimately, you write, he wants an out. He sells off all the pieces that he's able. He sells, which is curious. You know, I mean, he'd bought McFarlane, Walter, and Ross the year before from Jack Stoddard and John McFarlane, Gary Ross, Jan Walter. And yet he tells us that he was trying to create this exit plan for five years and sort of negotiating it with U of T. So it's hard to understand why he would buy McFarlane, Walter, and Ross in 1999 and then affect this plan in the middle of 2000. Uh-huh. Doesn't make a lot of sense. I, I asked him why. Why then? And he said, nobody pushed me out. That's interesting. On the other hand, he'd given a speech in the fall of 99 at their group book launch to the effect that Amazon was doing very bad things. Amazon was then fairly new. Yeah. You could buy a copy of Alice Munro's, I think it was The Progress of Love, that was published by McClellan and Stewart, but also by a U.S. publisher. You could, from Canada, go into Amazon.com, order that book, and have it delivered to your address from the U.S. publisher. Yeah. Bad. This is a sign of things to come. This is a sign of things to come. Uh I mean, my belief is he took one look at that and being smart said, you know, the end is nigh. Yeah. Time to get out. Yeah. I mean, the allegory of this case telling the story of the whole damn thing, it just keeps coming back. And the Internet's ability to destroy, destroy everything. Well, it creates a lot. But it, but if you're trying to do, if you're trying to make money, it's tough. It's really tough. I wasn't going to say that. I was going to say if you are trying to set up regulations that uh, observe and respect national borders. Oh, absolutely. That's really difficult. So, OK, so he sells 25 percent of it to Random House of Canada foreign-owned, the leading foreign-owned publisher in the Penguin country, Ra- yeah. and definitely the largest. Do you know how much he sold it for? I do. How much? He sold it for $5.3 million in cash, plus a $1 million promissory note. Okay. Five, six million dollars. He sells out 25% of it. Right. In 2000, he gives 75% of the shares uh-huh. of M&S to U of T. Thus, the whole deal seems to fit perfectly with the rules as they then existed. In other words, a Canadian entity was taking over control of a Canadian publisher. Where's the problem? There's no problem. What did he pay getting in? Probably about two mil. So he's a great guy and doing wonderful things for culture, but that's a pretty good investment. Well, over 15 years, I think that's questionable. Maybe not for him, but four, uh, four, four million profit over... We, uh, we don't know if it's a profit because we don't know how much he lent to the company okay. over the course of those years. Obviously, there's ways you could have made a lot more money. Well, look, the gift attracts a tax credit. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Of 15.9 million. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Now, remember, his money is coming from the development business. The money, the tax credit is going to his development company, First Plazas. So he's doing pretty well. He's doing pretty well. And and at this point, the story is consistent. He's bequeathing one Canadian institution to another. So he says. And this is all within the CanCon regime. Yeah, so why does he go to Ottawa to ask for permission? Tell me. Because Random House insisted on it. Because they wanted to be extra super sure? They wanted to be declared a Canadian company 
for purposes of a number of things, but more specifically so that McClellan and Stewart, which was entirely under control by this deal, would be continue to be treated as a Canadian company and thus able to get tax credits and grants. Aha. Uh-huh. Millions. Okay. And wow. And so the minister said, fine. But U of T is running 75% of it, so... Except it's not. How did that end? U of T declared that it did not have control only six months after this deal was put together. It declared it to itself. Why? Because the donor, Avi Bennett, did not want them to mention anywhere in a public place the size of the tax credit that the U of T had issued the certificate for 15.9 mil. So they had no control. They behaved as a shell. They, till 2011, pretended to have control when, in fact, Random House had control of everything, of the bank accounts, of writing checks, even of who shall be the president and publisher appointed as a director by U of T. So why would U of T allow themselves to be used in that way? Five million bucks. Uh Uh-huh. There was a part of the deal in which after five years, if U of T wanted out, it could call what's called a put. It could ask Random House to buy it out. And if Random House could get permission, the price was set at five million bucks. If Random House could not get permission or didn't want to buy it out, it could turn to First Plazas and say, take your shares back, pay us five million bucks. So U of T gets a really good press day when it's announced that they're in charge of this great Canadian institution. Right. And then they're insured on the back end with five million bucks. Instead, they wrote down the value of the shares twice, first to 10 million, then to zero. And by this point, Random House had built up a huge head of debt, had secured that debt, so it was in a position to push M&S into bankruptcy, and then said, either give us all your shares, U of T, or we are going to force it into bankruptcy, and U of T said fine. And that's how it ended. 75% of McClellan and Stewart transferred to Random House for $1 in 2011. And the minister approved that too. Why? Why? Because the amount of the debt was 16 mil, and the terms of the agreement were that if anybody wanted to buy those shares from U of T, they first had to pay out the entirety of the debt to Random House. Uh-huh. Random House could write off the debt, didn't matter, but a Canadian publisher trying to buy from its competitor a company already staggering under a load of $16 million worth of debt, that person was never going to come forward. So there were no alternative buyers. And the upshot is that it's now entirely owned. By Random House. The larger context is, is really important, and it goes like this. It was obvious that in order to get the boomer vote back in 74, that a nationalist policy was required and that it, it was especially important in the cultural industries area because if you could not have your own stories reflected back to you, the theory was you couldn't actually have a, an identity as a country. You may recall that Trudeau's multiculturalism policy comes in in 1971, one year after the October crisis. So the theory of, of the multicultural policy is that we all have different stories because we all come from somewhere else 
And that's the beauty of this country. We're a mosaic, and we need to reflect that. And the more we reflect that, the more we will be tolerant of each other, live well with each other, and create something new. So cultural policy and the idea that cultural policy was vital to national sovereignty comes from that period. And we never really lose that idea. That idea has continued on all of these years. We're now, what, 45 years down the road. And I think if you ask most Canadians, they would say to you that they believe it is important that Canadian stories be told. So the question is how? And mm-hmm. how, do you, how do you make sure that you have the economic resources for those stories, not only to be told, but to be seen, to find audiences, whatever? It became very clear to both Trudeau and his successors, that would be Mulroney, Crechan, Martin, Stephen Harper even, that you mess with that policy at your peril. It's the third rail of our politics. You can't mess with it in public or people will jump up and down and say, no, 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 this is vital. You've always said it's vital. It's still vital. You don't trade it off in your, in your trade deals. You keep it protected because we're too small to make a go of it without that protection. And it's such small potatoes. So it's like a rounding error on the, on the federal budget. So what's the yeah. deal? You know, why not? The political cost of... The political cost is huge. The financial cost is small. Yeah. So you get a Stephen Harper government in power, and that government has a different view. Its view is, well, maybe we can get rid of this because we don't believe in protectionism. We believe in free trade. However, we're not stupid. We have minority governments. We're not going to push this in people's faces. We're just going to make a bunch of decisions. And those decisions will fly in the face of the policy. But so what? You know, as long as we don't take it on and try and rewrite it and then try and take it out there as a a change in the law, we'll be okay. And that's effectively what they did. And one of those decisions was to rubber stamp this deal. Yeah. And another one of those decisions was to allow Post Media to effectively go under the control of Golden Tree Assets and yep. to basically disassemble the protection newspaper. And to allow Indigo to sell the Kobo system to Rakuten, a foreign policy uh-huh. issue, to allow Torstar to sell Harlequin yeah. for $455 million to HarperCollins, to allow Penguin to merge with Random House, although the law says that you don't have to permit such a merger of subsidiaries just because the parents are merging. But they, they permitted it anyway. So you have this progressive collapse into what I call oligopsony in the book publishing business, a similar collapse in the newspaper business, and now we're really in trouble, okay, because these businesses are fragile, and yet we need them. They're vital to how we function. Okay, so that's narrative one, that the Harper government very skillfully and quietly reverse engineered and... and, and, They didn't uh, really reverse... They just allowed deals to go through that probably should have had a lot Uh stronger scrutiny and and they could have said no to. And we end up with McClellan and Stewart, which is the the kind of golden shining example of what Khan can do at its height as what? What is... I call it the point of origin. What is it now? What is McClellan Stewart at this point? It's a colophon. What does that mean? That means it's a it's a little image on the spine of a book. It exists as a imprint. A series of imprints. But a culture, a publishing house, uh, a sensibility, that all is gone. The hunt for... Uh, I, with Ellen Seligman's death, yeah. Uh-huh. All right. That's the doomsday scenario. 
let me present to you a different perspective from your own book. You write about the book industry in Canada. People who publish and distribute books in Canada have mythologized their business as a social virtue for close to 70 years. In New York, they don't distinguish the book business from any other business because in New York, all businesses are virtuous. I like that a lot. Books made in Canada, so long as they are not self-help tracts or cookbooks, are widely considered to be capital G, good things that any capital right-thinking person should purchase during the holiday season, the more the better. Civil servants who have doled out hundreds of millions of dollars over four decades to Canadian-owned publishing companies in the form of grants and tax credits take this one step further by adding the phrase vital to national sovereignty. And you write about the incestuous culture within publishing. Ah, oh, that's a little harsh. I don't think I say they're incestuous. They fall in love with each other, marry, that fall out of do. love, whisper about who is sleeping with who and who is left with whom. They fight, schmooze, hire, fire, point fingers at that one's failure or that one's surely undeserved success. That all of this inspires almost a mafia-like, you ask officials at the University of Toronto for details when you're trying to investigate the story that you're reporting. They behave like they were witnesses to a gangland slaying. So we have an omerta code within this cultural uh, community. Only on this deal. I was asking specifically about this deal. And you describe grants, and I should mention your book received it. You received a a grant to write your book. I did. And you describe grants as uh, efforts to defend Canada's mental borders. Yeah. Everything you're writing there is consistent with uh, a lot of things that I have felt are the unintended consequences of all these protectionist schemes, that it essentially has created a Toronto-based elite class of people who are much more interested in their own positions and rankings and gossip than necessarily this higher cause of finding the best culture and celebrating it and telling Canadian stories. For all this talk of telling Canadian stories, it's a certain kind of Canadian who's had their stories told. And uh, the ratio of dreck (laughs) to, to worthy work... To those trying to enter any creative industry and seeing where the money is going, who's getting the positions, who's getting the grant money, it's tremendously frustrating. You feel like you're not entering into a system that's really looking for quality or on a talent hunt or even wants even to make money, but it's more about who you know and making the right connections and getting that grant and not pissing people off. And when I hear this most recent bonanza of grant money for the Canada 150th, where, as was described to me, every artist in the country is trying to find the smallest maple leaf pin they can possibly pin onto their project or grant application in order to just get a wad of that cash. So I'll I'll sing a little bit of a patriotic song if I have to, because we do what we have to, to tell our stories or to just do our work. But I think maybe that's it. And maybe maybe it's not even Harper's fault. Maybe the internet has just made all of this stuff impossible. The newspaper protectionist schemes that only really covers physical print newspapers, CRTC doesn't even regulate the internet. Has Trudeau's vision, the CanCon regime, was it all such a triumph? And is it possible that we're better off without it? It's not like people are going to stop telling Canadian stories. Ah, there you may be wrong. I mean, one, one of the problems is, okay, how do people get paid to do this work? So the virtue of the grant system was that in spite of the fact that these books would not sell sufficient numbers to actually make anybody any money, people would continue because there was some kind of revenue stream that made it possible. If you're talking about the period, say, from 1986 up until about 2000, people who wrote fiction books that found audiences made money. People who published with the larger foreign entities and even with McClellan and Stewart and some of the larger Canadian independents made money. 
But with the internet, with social media, with Facebook, with, you know, all the different ways to tell stories and the complete devastation of the idea of a territory, you know, with a boundary, Mm -hmm. all of those rules have changed. And I think clearly we have to reconsider how we do this, whether we do this, and if we do this, for what purpose? Yes. We're not going to solve, like, how to get paid for... I mean, this stuff becomes... It's all born of just cultural and technological realities. The novel as a mass media unit of entertainment, of commerce, of storytelling, the massive, you know, multi-million print run paperback, that itself was a technological consequence. If that consequence is coming to an end and it's now... Uh, some sort of an elite parlor game of, you know, the, the novel with uh, 3,000 copies published or, or the political memoir. The books have symbolic value. You know, it, it gets enshrined that this is a national good, yep. that we must have this and that our intellectual or our, even our sovereignty depends uh, on you it. You can cut to the chase. I mean, if you look at how many Canadian publishers there are who yeah. are supported by this system, I think it's 230 or 235 who get funding from the Department of Canadian Heritage, among others. Those numbers have grown as the industry itself has shrunk, right? Uh-huh. So the industry used to produce revenues of $2.1 billion, I think, in 2010. Maybe it was 2006. By 2014, I think it was down to $1.7 billion. Okay, you shouldn't be shrinking. You shouldn't be growing your number of publishing companies while... The total revenues are shrinking. Why not? Because it means that the business is going in the tank. Why why would you keep expanding the number of publishers you have out there when you can't support the ones you already do have? Well, I mean, first of all, who's you? I mean, I'm talking about governments now. Right. I'm talking about granters. Because I think what's happening is... And my is... publisher would like to hang me every time I <laughs> say this. Please don't say this, Elaine. I think what's happening is that it's becoming a bit of a, of a niche boutique thing to be a publisher. And we're, having, we're seeing much stratification, much in the same way that there's uh, a thousand little shops doing podcasting or artisanal chocolate or whatever. It's no longer big business. So the trends of massive consolidation of big business that drive corporate culture no longer really apply to some of these legacy cultural industries. Well, in fact, the consolidation worldwide has been so huge that there's not much room to consolidate anymore, which is why it's so strange that you have 230 publishers in this country of 30, but what, 40 million people. It's mad. doesn't work. When it's all said and done, and let's imagine for a second that whatever we say here is kind of inconsequential because the government is not going to... Grab the third rail. They're not going to grab the third rail. They're not going to triple down on, and they're not able to. It's impossible technologically to rebuild a protectionist cultural regime like existed in the past. The technology just doesn't. No, and in fact, in the current budget, they basically say protectionism is over. Yeah. However, they say it, you know, in small print, and you have to hunt to find that. So the Minister of Canadian Heritage, whose name is Melanie Jolie, had a consultation Mm -hmm. about what to do about Canadian cultural policy, given the fact that, I think she called it digital content, and and I can't remember the name now. Yeah. But anyway, so this consultation took place in a very strange way. I had to use investigative tools to get to one of her in-person meetings. It was absurd. And what was very clear to me, and is clear to me, is that the Department of Canadian Heritage really doesn't know what the hell it's doing or how the, how to get out of this fix or how to manage to support artists and support 
entrepreneurs on the cultural side, their focus is let's export and then we'll expand our market. Okay. The problem with that is export to whom? Well, I believe she's said something that there's no problem with the content. It's a distribution problem. Now, distribution of content's never been easier. It's a nice idea. She wants to see us as sort of like, you know, oh, the BBC, they make shows that people love all around the world and wash her hands of the content problem. I think that the reality is our content isn't as strong as theirs, and there's a reason why we can't sell it on an international market. We don't have anything like the budget, for one thing, and uh, we don't have that larger pool of, of filmmakers. We have some, but not as many. Uh, we, we have talent here that, though they typically make their work in the States, make work that's as good as anything that's made anywhere. Agreed. But again, I don't think that it's going to be solved at a policy level. So I think I think any way you slice it, it's kind of over. And this era, which at, at times you write about with a lot of adulation, you say for a time, these policies led to a flowering of literature about Canada by Canadians, some of it appreciated far beyond this nation's borders and some of it universal in its reach. You know what? That's true. And though the canon can be criticized for the perspectives and uh, the people of privilege and the fact that there's a lot of white people and the fact that there's class issues within the canon, canon but there's some g- wonderful work that for a time we sort of, you know, there's movements. Montreal Indie rock had a movement. Toronto hip hop can have. There's times when all these minds come together and there was Margaret Lawrence, Margaret Atwood, and we had Richler and we had these people. There was a time with Leonard Cohen and all, you know, there's great stuff that happened. It's done. There's a lot of stuff we don't talk about, a lot more stuff that will never probably be spoken about that was not so great. And whatever happens next. And I next, think this is true in any, in any cultural enterprise, you know, 90% schlock, 10% good. Sure. And it will roll on. Do you fear that this is going to stop people from making stuff that we don't without these without these rules and without these handouts? No, what what I fear is that we're so small in the global scheme of things that the businesses which actually have capital to invest in writers and therefore pay them are shrinking themselves and are just on the line between hanging on and and going under. What I'm worried about is that the whole infrastructure is fragile to the point of no return. I don't know what happens if it all falls down. I mean, in effect, we'd be starting all over and we'd have to figure out ways to make money. I mean, the problem is making money. I did two novels that I published online. Wonderful. I had such fun. It was great. They're being read. But I'm I'm not going to see a dime from them. Yeah. Right? So it's only because I'm old and I get a little pension check that I'm able to do that. What happens to people who are 25 and 30 and 35 trying to begin their careers, trying to to get out there and find an audience? What happens to them? This system for a time matched readers and writers Uh and did a pretty good job of it. I don't think that's true anymore, and I I worry about where it's going to be in 10 years. But I can tell you this. In 98, writers made twice as much as they make now. Sure. And that's terrible. Yeah. I, again, independent, I think, of Canadian policy. These are trends in, in the business and in readership itself, and, and it has to do with the internet. But you write that even at the best of times, when it was in the billions, writers got about 7% of that. Yeah. That this was, and this really is the story of the boomers. It's, it gets so often pegged to the 60s, but I feel like the more telling part of this is that uh, well-meaning people getting into these cultural industries 
ultimately offloading it. Ultimately, you could look at the whole thing writ large and see that this is becoming a bit of a racket, that it's becoming uh, about class and prestige, that the the, the major benefactors are not the artists themselves. I don't think it's about class and prestige for everybody. I think there are a lot of people who do this, who do it for the same reasons you do this, because you feel impelled, because you think there are stories that are important to tell, because you think that there's an audience who needs to hear it. And what they do is they scramble to try and find the economic means to make that possible. I mean, I'm sure that there are some at the top who see this as kind of a good way to go to parties. But for most of the grunts, it's another kind of thing altogether. It's, you know, an obsession or a passion or a, a determination. I mean, all of these things come into play. I don't think it's fair to say that the whole system is defined by the people who are at the top of it. It's, it's not real. No, but it's in that middle. You know, I don't think it's it needs to be as damning as maybe I, I put it. <laughs> you know, like, I think that people get into it for the best reasons. But I don't know. Who knows? In 10 years, podcasting may be something that is, uh, you know, considered a wonderful part of, of Canada's emerging culture. Then, And it's protected by uh, various grant systems and my week is made up of uh, it behooves me to know the people who pull the strings and to and to fill out those grant applications. Fill out those applications right. and to give vanity projects. And I take projects. it you're not doing that now. Well, no. This is not a grant-based project. We don't take assent from the government. But you, know, you get my point, which is just that, look, publishing started off as uh, gloriously, like like a lot of cultural industries, it was like sleazy operators trying to turn a buck and God help them when they get respectable. That seems to be when everything... Well, publishing, I mean, in this country started not with sleazy operators, but people trying to pass religious tracts. Uh-huh. So that's where it really starts. Tomato, tomato. The Bible. Let's bring the Bible out. Let's do another re- edition. And then... Yeah. Gradually, slowly, a literature develops. Thank you. You're welcome. That was your Canada Land. I hope you enjoyed it. You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything and I respond when I can. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. Our website is canadalandshow.com. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. I make the show with Russell Gregg. We've got some other podcasts coming out this week. There is The Imposter on Wednesday, and there's the next Canada Land Shortcuts on Thursday. If you like what we do, please support us. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.